You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. One Corinthians chapter five. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And this is from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach 
and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good day, City on a Hill. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, today, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter written by the pastor named Paul to a young, growing and urban church in Corinth who are wrestling with uh, life and faith amidst a complex and challenging world. In the first four chapters, Paul has laid out uh, his pastoral word addressing the problem of jealousy and bitterness. Today, he makes a transition and deals with a series of hot topics and big questions facing the church. Next weekend in chapter seven, he's going to deal with questions around marriage and singleness. In chapter 11, uh, he's going to deal with questions around gender identity and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And then in chapter 12, he's going to explore their questions around spiritual gifts. But today in chapter five and chapter six, Paul is going to deal with perhaps the most controversial of all topics. I've titled today's sermon, Sex, Lies and Zoom Meetings. Now, I do appreciate that sex is a little bit taboo in the church today. So if it helps you to just get it out in the open, why don't you type in the comments below in big caps, sex, right? Just do that now, but please no emojis, right? Now, I must confess, like most of us today, that as a young kid, I had a keen curiosity uh, towards sex. I think I first found out about sex when I was about eight years of age, and I discovered a large collection of porn magazines under my parents' uh, bed. And uh, it made for an interesting discovery about sex, but also a very interesting show and tell uh, at school the next day. Here I was in grade three, standing up, giving uh, ins and outs of all things sex. I later discovered that as I was giving the class presentation, there was a young uh, Christian girl uh, looking on and she wrote to me 20 years later to say that as I was talking about porn, she decided to pray for me. And so here I am some 20 years later, still talking about sex, but as a Christian pastor. Seems that God has a sense of humor. Of course, sex is not only a timeless topic. It is also 
incredibly timely for us. Uh, we all know that uh, as COVID-19 dropped, the world was impacted in so many ways. Uh, travel was down, sport and entertainment was down. My ability to fend off carbs, way, way down. But that's not the only thing that has been down. There's actually been a flip towards things going up. Uh, you may have noticed this or heard about this, I should say. Uh, the world's largest pornography website exploded with traffic the moment that COVID-19 lit up and they gave out free memberships uh, to anyone on the condition to encourage people to stay indoors. And they saw the, saw the highest spike in places like Italy, Paris and Spain, where they saw an increase of 58%. And interestingly, the rise in pornography was also matched by purchasing of sex toys. Uh, the moment that Scott Morrison announced uh, a lockdown, uh, Australia's purchase of sex toys doubled not to be outdone by New Zealand, our good friends there. The moment that Jacinda Ardern uh, announced a month-long lockdown, uh, they saw uh, sex toys triple uh, in the amount of people who were purchasing them. Of course, it's not just the purchasing of sex that has been impacted through COVID-19. A university professor at Macquarie University in New South Wales had to stop her class midstream to tell off two first-year law students for getting frisky during her class while it was being broadcast live via Zoom. She said this to the press, I know precedent is a very sexy topic and I love when my audience, audiences are engaged and animated, but there is a limit to that. And then there is the story uh, of the brothel in Geelong that ignored lockdown restrictions and saw their business boom. Police said, we were called to this brothel because the street was so busy at one stage, it became a traffic jam. The owners of the brothel claiming they were unaware of the restrictions. Now, does any of this surprise us? Do any of these headlines about sex, lies and Zoom meetings have us gasping for air? No. Why? Because we are what the age once described, generation sex. That is, for you and I, we've been discipled in a culture that doesn't see sex as just a gift to enjoy, but is in, is in fact a God we worship, right? And, and you know what's interesting? We are not the first generation to worship sex. Uh, the city of Corinth was, if you like, the Amsterdam of the ancient world, right? Uh, travelers and sailors would visit to Corinth and they would dock there and then climb the thousand steps all the way up to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and sex and desire. And as you walked on through the, the columns and into the incense-filled temple, there was upwards of a thousand young women already and willing to sell their bodies as an act of worship to their God. Sex in Corinth was big business and progressive lifestyles, lifestyles were celebrated. So much so that no matter where you were in the Roman Empire, if you were talking about a woman who sold her body or slept around, she would be referred to as a Corinthian girl. Now, what does this all mean for the church? What does it mean for 
to be a, a, a Christian in an age of sex, lies and Zoom meetings. Well, if you have a Bible handy, come with me uh, to our reading in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Now, you might like to underscore uh, the word sexual immorality because it comes from the Greek word porneia, which is where we get the word porn. And when Paul speaks about porn, he is not talking just about strippers or temple prostitutes, but any and all sexual activity that happens outside of the covenant of marriage. In our day, this would include watching porn or cheating on your husband or wife. This would include a hooking up for a one night stand via Tinder or Grinder. This would include uh, uh, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you get married. You know, as a pastor, I often get asked by Christians who are dating, how far is too far? You know, is it first base? Is it second base? Is it third base? The Bible says that that's a playing field that is reserved for marriage, right? Once you say, I do, you can hit as many home runs as you like. But until then, we want to trust and honor God's word. The question should not be, how far can I go? But rather, how pure can I be? Now, clearly, this was not the case in Corinth. In fact, as you can see in our text, there's reports of a bloke having an affair with his stepmom. What's more, people in the church are celebrating that as if his progressive lifestyle is a testimony to the freedom they have in Christ. How does Paul respond? He says, check it out. Verse 9. No, not verse 9. What verse is it? I've completed, yeah, it is verse nine. Verse nine, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, nor even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those outside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Right? Interesting. If you're a Christian, your job is not to judge the sin out there in the world. We're called to deal with the sin within the church, whether that's the sin of greed, whether that's the sin of idolatry, or in this case, the sin of porneia, it must be cast out and dealt with. And of course, the big question, the big question in all of this is why? Why is Paul so eager for us to flee sexual immorality? Is it because the Bible is out of touch with reality, stuck on the wrong side of history? Is it because God is a bit of a a stick in the mud, a cosmic killjoy who likes robbing us of all our fun? Well, as we look at our text today, I want to highlight for us 
four observations that explain why we must take God's word seriously and flee sexual immorality. So first, we flee sexual immorality because of our unity. Because of our unity, right? So, so Paul says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? So here, Paul is putting before the church uh, the image of a loaf of bread which is actually quite timely because it seems that throughout COVID-19, bread has made a huge comeback. Uh, One of my good friends, Dave May, who serves as the communication director, is going nuts right now over his sourdough bread. Every photo on my Instagram, Instagram account right now is basically Zoom meetings and loaves of bread. That's all I have right now. So I text Dave and, and you know, he's part of City on a Hill Geelong and I, and, and I text him uh, and I say, Dave, do you use leaven, right, in your sourdough? Because I don't know what leaven is and I'm trying to understand this text. And he says, yep, I have a sourdough starter. Want to make your own? How about you join my Facebook group? It's called Daily Bread. Cute name, Dave. But literally, I'm trying to work out what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. I have no idea what leaven is. He says, oh, right. Well, leaven, check this, is the raising agent used in bread. Most common these days, it's instant dry yeast. But a more ancient tradition, which steps back to ancient is Egypt, and he's making a comeback today, is a sourdough starter. Fun fact. He adds, only a small amount is required to ferment the whole dough. You won't see an instant transformation, but over several hours, the dough will change as the gluten structures develop, air bubbles emerge, and it expands. Okay, so what's the point of the illustration? It's quite clear, isn't it? The point is that when we allow leaven into the body of Christ, it will over time transform us. It may seem like a little pinch of sin, only one little insy bitsy pinch of pornea, but if left unchecked, it will change us from the inside out. And significantly, that not only compromises the body of Christ, but our witness in the world. I remember um, a few years back now, uh, jogging uh, with, a, with a young bloke. Uh, he was new to our church. He just moved to Melbourne from Adelaide and we were going for a run together around the botanical gardens just to talk about life and faith. And, and as I was chatting to him, I asked him if he, he knew about this big church in Adelaide that had just been through uh, a major scandal. And he says, yeah, I know about that church. And I said, wow, I mean, I just had coffee with the pastor not that long ago. And then I discovered that he got busted having an affair, cheating on his wife with another woman in the church who was also married. And at this point, the guy I'm running with, eyes open up and he says, I don't know how to tell, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm that guy. I'm like, what do you mean you're that guy? Well, the woman that that pastor slept with was my wife. 
And the moment he said that, I literally shoved him like this and I said, get out. And our run became a slow walk as he unpacked with me all the terrible details of the infidelity and how this pastor, who was a good mate of his, had gone uh, behind his back and acted in very crafty ways to conceal this ongoing affair. And I said to him, mate, how is it that you are here in Melbourne, back in church? How is it that you are even standing as a Christian after all of that? Because I know a lot of people who would go through something like that and just turn their back on God and, and walk away. Right? Brennan Manning famously said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Right? For those of us who've been hurt by the hypocrisy in the church, those who've seen people acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but then walk out the door and deny Jesus with their lifestyle. I want to say, I'm sorry. I am grieved by that. I'm hurt by the sin of the church. I want you to know that's not how it is supposed to be. Jesus is grieved by that. That is why we have this word so that we would know that we are in this together and there is to be not a hint of sexual immorality in the church. Do you see what Paul goes on to say when he's referring uh, to the Passover in verse 8? He says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why? truth, right? Because in a context about sexual immorality, you would expect him to talk about holiness and purity. But Paul says we celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why truth? Because at the heart of all sexual sin is a lie. A lie that God doesn't really care. A lie that says sin doesn't matter. A lie that says my sin won't hurt the whole body. Christian, we flee sexual immorality because of our unity. Second, we flee sexual immorality because of our good. Because of our good, right? Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, you'll notice that this phrase, all things are lawful for me, is in quotation marks. And that is because he's quoting Corinthians in Corinth who were flaunting their freedom in Christ, right? These are men and women who'd given their life to Jesus and uh, assumed that his grace gave them a free ticket, a hall pass to do whatever they wanted to do, to assert their rights, to pursue their desires, to do whatever they thought made them feel good. And while Paul doesn't deny their slogan, he does point out that just because something feels right doesn't make it right. Just because something feels good to you doesn't mean that it is good for you. And this is particularly relevant when it comes to sex. 
You and me, we have desires, right? When you woke up this morning, you had desires. And, 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 and for a lot of us, that would mean physical desires, desires for physical uh, intimacy and, and, and their sexual chemistry that you might have with someone. You feel that impulse. You feel that desire. You feel that longing for that to be fulfilled, right? But does that mean that, that, that just because you have those desires, that sex is always right and good? Well, that depends. It's like asking the question, is fire good? Fire is amazing when it's in a fireplace, but outside when it's tearing through the house, it's, it's dangerous. Lauren Dubinsky is a marketing director in, in Los Angeles. I, she's about 30 years of age. And as far as I can tell, she's definitely not a Christian and, and she's not religious in, in any way. And yet listen to what she says when it comes to her experience of porneia. She says this, I wish someone would have pointed out pornography can establish your sexuality completely apart from real life relationships, causing huge problems in your intimacy with real significant others. I wish someone would have told me that the dopamine and oxytocin being released from my watching certain types of pornography would cause me to question my sexual orientation, which in turn costs me relationships with friends. In the end, I simply wish someone would have told me why it was so harmful instead of simply putting it on a list of things we don't talk about. We all know our rights and wrongs, but seldom do we know what makes them so. Had I known how much it would have harmed me, I would have left it alone. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that sin isn't pleasing. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they looked at the forbidden fruit. It was pleasing to their eyes. In the same way, sexual sin can be pleasing to our eyes, can be alluring, but that doesn't make it right, nor does that make it good. And that's significant. It's significant for your life and relationships now, but also for your life and relationships in the age to come. Look to verse 9. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So picture it. A time is coming where your life will pass and you'll stand before the throne of the living God. And those who are in Christ will enter his kingdom. That is to say, you'll enter his happiness. You'll enter his uh, acceptance. You'll enter his inheritance. You'll enter life for it evermore. But as Paul warns, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is to say, they will not receive God's approval. They will not receive his life. They will enter death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Now, does that mean that a Christian who sins is damned forever? No. God knows on this side of heaven, we who are in Christ are often at war with sin. 
But Paul is not talking about the Christian who is at war with sin. He is talking about the man or woman who has made peace with sin. Right? This is the man or woman who says that sleeping around doesn't matter. The man or woman who thinks that God doesn't care about what they stream online. The man or woman who cheats on their husband or their wife, believing that what they are doing is justified because they are simply following their heart. Look, according to Paul, you are deceived. Deceived about your sin and deceived about where your sin will lead. There is nothing wrong with following your heart unless, of course, your heart leads you to hell. Of course, no sooner does Paul lay out the warning that he affirms with great joy the life and salvation the church has in Christ. Look at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Jesus, you're cleansed of all sin. In Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and made new. In Jesus, you're credited with the righteousness of God. His righteousness is now your righteousness. What does that mean for the Christian who has fallen back into the grip of temptation and sin? I believe the answer here is repent, right? We, the children of God, are to repent. Do you know what repentance means? Repentance is the cry of a loving father who says, you're going the wrong way. Come back. Come back. You're going the wrong way. When I'm walking with my kids through our neighborhood and one of my children is making a TikTok video and engrossed in the mobile phone and stumbles from the sidewalk onto the, 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 the road into oncoming traffic, what do I say as a loving father? Hey, follow your heart. You do you. No, I say, stop. You're going the wrong way. Come back. You say, Guy, that's a very extreme example. And I say, yes, I know. But might I suggest to you that physical danger is not as extreme as spiritual danger. Jesus himself said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Are you looking at porn? Repent. Are you cheating on your husband or your wife? Repent. Are you pushing the boundaries in your dating relationship? Repent. Jesus knows you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus knows what is best for you. As a Christian, we flee sexual immorality because of our unity, because of our good, and we flee, third, sexual immorality because of God's design. Right? Check out verse 13. Paul says, food is met for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
Now, it's helpful to know that at this time in history, uh, the early church, particularly in Corinth, were influenced by a stream of teaching known as Gnosticism. And, and put simply, uh, Gnosticism kind of taught a, uh, a duality in, in, in humanity that elevated the spirit over and against the body. They saw the, the spirit as being good and, and holy and viewed the, the body as being evil and, and bad, something of a prison that we needed to kind of break free from. And interestingly, this had huge implications for how people engaged their, their body. For example, next weekend, when we look at marriage and, and singleness, we're going to meet couples in Corinth who refuse in marriage to have sex because they believe that the body was dirty and therefore sex must have been gross and, and less spiritual, less holy. But interestingly, there were others who felt that because the body was secondary to the spirit, it was therefore perfectly okay to indulge the flesh. Now, interestingly, some Christians are practicing Gnostics today. You know, we tell ourselves that since our spirit is what goes to the heaven and, and the body is what decays and dies, uh, we don't need to care for our body. It doesn't matter what we eat. It doesn't matter uh, what, what, what exercise we do or what rest we get. And in extreme situations, we throw our body away recklessly to, to porn and, and, and one night stands. But when Paul says... The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He's saying that matter matters, right? Jesus came and, and he took on a human body and he died in a human body and he rose, guess what? In a human body to redeem us for all humanity where again we will live in a body, right? And, and your body, you need to know this, was designed by God for His glory and for your good. You know, when I grew up, I mean, I wasn't a Christian. I assumed from Christians I spoke to that, that sex was the devil's idea, that God was anti-sex. And I thought that until I did something quite surprising, and that was reading the Bible. And in the Bible, I discovered that God was the one who made us. God was the one who made us. And he, when he made Adam the first body, he, he fashioned him exactly how he wanted him to be. And guess what? That included the penis, right? God made the penis. The penis was not a mistake. It was not an aftermarket add-on. And it certainly wasn't the devil's design. It's not as if God was fixing a sandwich in heaven and the devil kind of came out from the bushes and said, Adam, try this on, right? That's not how it went. The penis was God's idea. What do I do with my penis, says Adam? God takes his rib. And then who does he create? Who comes out of the bushes looking incredible, kicking back her hair? Eve, right? And, and she's... She's bold, she's creative, she's intelligent, she's beautiful, and she is a sexual being, right? And whose idea was it to put the naked man with the naked woman in the garden? It was God's idea. And what do you suppose the naked Adam and the naked Eve did? They read their Bibles and they prayed. After that, after that, <laughs> They had sex. They had pre 
full sex, which has just got to be the best sex going around. Genesis 2, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Did that take God by surprise? Was he looking down from heaven in shock going, oh my goodness, I never would have imagined them do? No, because sex is God's idea. And if sex is God's creation, his idea, then it should not surprise us that God created sex with a particular purpose and plan in mind. Check out verse 15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, note this, the two will become what? One flesh. You see what Paul is saying? When God designed sex, he didn't just have procreation in mind. God gave us sex as a means of grace to draw a man and a woman together and make them one. Right? And this is so crucial in understanding Paul's argument. People ask, what's wrong with a bit of sex outside of marriage? What's wrong with a little bit of porn on the side? The answer is actually very, very simple. Sex in its essence is the expression of oneness, right? In the same way that our unity and our oneness with Christ is, uh, is enjoyed as a total and complete union, so sex is how uh, a man says to a woman and a woman says to a man, I... I belong completely and exclusively to you. And so the Bible says that you should never do with your bodies what you're not prepared to do with the rest of your life. Or to put it another way, when you're ready to surrender everything to another, then and only then are you ready for sex. Does that make it easy? No. In fact, I still have uh, many fond memories of attending youth group and, and hearing you know, the, the, the many you know, sermons and messages about sexual purity. In fact, I remember this one night uh, where the youth pastor handed out two pieces of paper, gave us pens and asked us to sign our names, promising that we wouldn't have sex until we were married. And then he explained uh, that we got to keep one copy and that they were going to send the other copy to the prime minister of Australia. Why on earth uh, the Prime Minister of Australia wanted to know about my virginity? I have no idea. But here I am as a teenager with this paper, with this pen, weighing up the cost of following Christ. And while today I'm a married man, I've been married nearly 18 years, I would be lying to you if I told you that sexual temptation wasn't crouching at my door, right? I, I still have an imagination. I still have desires. I still think about the world and what the world's doing and what it means to be a Christian and what I have to lay down to follow him alone. And I suspect I'm not the only person in this space. You know, it could be that you're married and maybe a little bit bored with your partner. Could be that you're single and feeling alone and frustrated that you can't you know, have your desires fulfilled. It could be that you're in a dating relationship and right now you're feeling the temptation, the desire to take that to another level. We each in our own way must stare down our temptations and count the costs. And ultimately at its heart, that's a question of trust. Who do I trust in all of this? 
Do I trust the world and what they say? Do I trust my desires and where they will lead? Or will I trust Jesus and His Word and His grace and His goodness and His love? And this leads to our fourth and final point. Look, we flee sexual immorality ultimately because of His love. Have a look at how Paul closes out this chapter. Verse 18, city on a hill, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. One of my favorite books is The Portrait of Dorian Gray by uh, Oscar Wilde. And uh, it's about a very wealthy and attractive man who hires an artist to paint for him uh, his own portrait. And it's a stunning work. Uh, In fact, so stunning that Dorian begins to lament the painting because he realizes that the painting, unlike himself, will not age. He will weary, his body will decay, but this beauty, this painting, this portrait will live forever. And so Dorian bargains with heaven, asking that the painting bears uh, the burden of his age while he can go out and enjoy a life following the desires of his heart. And so gifted with this, Dorian becomes a disciple of hedonism, pursuing the many rooms of sex and debauchery and pleasure. Along the way, he meets a young actress named Sybil Vane, uh, and they fall madly in love. And eager to show her off to his mates, he brings his friends to the theatre to watch her perform on the stage. But for whatever reason, she, she crashes that night and, and she fumbles and, and, and he's embarrassed by her. He's embarrassed and his pride is struck in front of his friends. And so after the show, he goes up to her and he dumps her. He dumps her like a, a, a bag of dirty clothes and he leaves her and he, and he goes on home. And that night as he returns home, he notices something about the face in the portrait. It's changed. It now sneers. And he's freaked out by this and he's desperate to make amends. And so he goes to try and find his ex-girlfriend only to discover that the rejection was so severe that she has taken her life. Unsure how to deal with this, Dorian then just throws himself into deeper hedonism and more and more debauchery and more and more sexual sin. And while his beauty remains, the painting bears his soul. Day by day, the shame of his his indulgences contort the portrait until eventually it becomes so vile that Dorian spends just as much time uh, hiding the portrait that he does seeking his own pleasure and sin. Now, why did Oscar Wilde write this book? I believe he knew something about the problem of porneia. He knew from his own life the emptiness of self-indulgence, the peril of uh, feeding the flesh. And ultimately, he knew the problem of misplaced love. Sex is a great gift, but it makes a terrible, terrible God. And this is why the gospel is good news of great 
joy. Did you notice what Paul says at the end of our text? He says, listen, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Now, Paul is playing here with the image of slavery. He's saying you were enslaved to sin. You're a slave to your desires. You're a slave to the idol of sex. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has bought you with a price and set you free. In other words, you no longer belong to the world. You belong to Jesus. You are His. And this image of Jesus purchasing you not only signifies the the, the debt of sin that we were in, but also, listen, the extent of God's great love. Just as the portrait took on Dorian's sin and self-indulgence, so in Christ we see God taking upon Himself all of our sin and shame. Jesus took on my lust. Jesus took on your lust. Jesus took on my sin and my shame. Jesus took on your sin and your shame. He who knew no sin became sin. Did you know what happened to the portrait of Dorian Gray? It became so vile that Dorian couldn't handle its sight anymore that he pulls out a blade and attempts to destroy it forever. It just amazes me to think about all that Jesus knew, all the costs he knew he would embrace to redeem us for himself, that we, when we would look at the face of God, we would pull out our dagger and take a knife to him. And yet on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus embraced the suffering. Jesus embraced the cost and he did it willingly and he did it joyfully. You know what that is? That is true love, right? This is love, the Bible says. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. I want you to know there is no greater love than the love that is yours in Jesus. His love is better than any worldly experience. His love is better than sex. His love is better than life itself. In Christ, I can wake up every morning secure in His love and affection. In Christ, we can enter this world knowing that we're free, knowing that we are secure, no matter the uncertainty around us. In Jesus, we have a love that redeems all relationships and restores all the other loves to their rightful place. In a moment, we're going to sing a great hymn, Come Thou Fount, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, Sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. You know, that hymn was written by Robert Robinson. And he was so inspired by the love of God that he gave his life in the 18th century to serve as a pastor, preached many sermons and penned many great songs. And yet, He found himself in a season of doubt and walking through the valley and and kind of threw himself back at the world. And he went so far from God that he wondered if he was ever able to return and come home. 
But one day, uh, he takes a ride on a stagecoach. And there sitting on the other seat is a young woman who's reading what appears to be poetry. And Robinson sees her flicking these pages and reading this poetry and asks her what she's reading. And she doesn't know who she's talking to. And she says, I'm reading the words of Come Thou Fount. And she starts to read out the hymn to Robinson. She doesn't know who he is. And he tries to change the topic. But eventually he comes clean and says to her, Madame, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I'd give a thousand words if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. In that moment, she pauses and says to him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. The streams of mercy are still flowing. And in that moment, he gave his heart again to the Lord and received his love. You know, today, I suspect that some of us are exploring Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're tuning in the first or second or third week and, and you're curious about this Jesus. And, and, and God is speaking to you and God is inviting you right now to know his love, to be secure in his love. And perhaps there are others here who, a little bit like Robinson, have maybe grown up knowing Jesus. You've known Jesus for a long time, and yet right now you yourself know that you've wandered. You yourself feel that you're in the grip of temptation and sin. I want you to know that the streams of mercy are still flowing. Don't hold on to your sin. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Know that Jesus loves you. Know that Jesus died for you. Know that Jesus rose from you, that you can live a new and glorious life. One of the great ways that you can respond today is in prayer. And if you'd like to respond to Jesus, let me encourage you right now where you are to SMS prayer to the number that we have below. There'll be a team of people. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to hear what's happening in your life. We'd love to serve you. We'd love to pray for you. And we do that joyfully because we know that Jesus is good news of great joy for all who believe. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We are thankful for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, and indeed for his love. I pray that right now, no matter where we are, no matter which home we are in, we would rest in the security of your good news. Help us, Lord, to be captured by the wonder of Jesus and his rescuing and redeeming love. And we pray this for our good. And we pray this for the good of this nation and our world. And we pray this for your glory. And it's in the precious and mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.